0: And so, brothers and sisters, why are we called to forgiveness and to seek reconciliation? Because that is exactly how God has dealt with us. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at King's Cross Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thekingscrosschurch.com. It is always a privilege to open God's Word with you, and so take your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 33. We encourage you to have a Bible in your hand. If you don't, there are Bibles in the back. Brett would love to give you a Bible if you don't have one, or if you have your phone, at least have your phone out and have God's Word uh, in front of you. We're going to be reading through the chapter in just a moment. Uh, One of the things that uh, was encouraging, and one of the things that struck me when I returned from Thailand a couple of weeks ago was how important and how precious the church is. Uh, and I, when I say church, I mean I mean our church here, King's Cross, this church. It, it was wonderful. We have uh, we have Jeff and Annie are back with us, and also Crispin and Karen are back with us. They were in Thailand. Uh, with us together, and as wonderful as it was to sing with, uh, to preach to, to fellowship with these solid missionary families that are serving the Lord and taking the gospel to places it hasn't been, we were struck with the fact that that wasn't the church. It was wonderful, but that wasn't the church. And so it's good to be back. It's always good when, you're, when you've gone somewhere. It's always good to be back with your own brothers and sisters in Christ, being back with the members that you've committed yourself to. And so I pray that all of us would grow in our love for one another and in our commitment first to the Lord, but that flows down to our commitment to one another as members of the body of Christ. And you know what's also really cool is I leave the country and I leave these uncomfortable black chairs, and I come back, and magically, they're replaced. Yeah. <laughs> it was great, uh, and I hope you're enjoying those. I can tell you are. Um, and we, have, we need to give thanks to a dear lady that's part of our congregation that, that donated uh, the funds to, for us to be able to get these chairs, and uh, so we're very thankful. Um, but as we come to God's word this morning, uh, let's do so with reverence, and knowing that His word has authority in our lives. It has authority for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, as 2 Timothy 3:16 tells us. But why do we submit to the authority of God's Word? Well, we do so because the Christian loves the Lord. It's very simple. The Christian loves the truth. A Christian loves righteousness. And God's word gives us all those things. In fact, it gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. There's a Puritan pastor. His name was Francis Roberts. And he had these beautiful words to say He said, In a word, what is there not in the Holy Scriptures? Are we poor? Here's a treasury of riches. Are we sick? Here are the medicines. Are we fainting? Here are the cordials. Are we Christless? Here's the star that leads to Christ. Are we afflicted? Here's our solace. Are we persecuted? Here's our protection. Are we deserted? Here's our recovery. Are we tempted? Here's our sword and victory. Are you young here this morning? Here's your beauty. Are you old here this morning? Here's your wisdom. While we live, here's the rule of our conversation. When we die, here's the hope of our glorification. So that I may say with Tertullian, that great church father, I adore the fullness of the scripture. Oh, blessed scriptures, who can know them and not love them? And I confess this morning, and I'm sure you would as well, that I don't adore the scriptures as much as Francis Roberts describes them this morning. But I am desiring to grow in my love for them, and I pray that we all will together as we continue to walk with the Lord. Well, the year was 1940, and the month was May, and there was a large number of British, Belgian, and French soldiers that had found themselves cut off and overrun after they were trying to defend uh, France from the Nazi invasion. And the only way out was to be evacuated from the beaches and the harbor of a port known as Dunkirk. You might have heard this story in northern France. Uh, For a period of eight days, while German troops and tanks were advancing from the land and the German Air Force was bombing them from above, the British commanders put together a daring plan to rescue these soldiers. At the end of eight days, June 4th, miraculously, 338,226 soldiers had been rescued by a fleet of over 800 ships. And these included destroyers and military vessels, but also private boats uh, piloted by British citizens. And they were known as the Little Ships of Dunkirk. It was hundreds of merchant marine boats, fishing boats, Pleasure craft, yachts, lifeboats, they were all called into service from Britain. It was a really amazing rescue. And I bring it in this morning as a modern example uh, to illustrate that in a sense, Jacob was in a similar place as these soldiers. He was stuck between a rock and a hard place. He could not go back to Laban because if he did, that would mean misery and possible death. It was ruin for him. And to his knowledge, what lay ahead of him and what was advancing toward him was certain death. And yet something had happened that transformed him, transformed his perspective, transformed his attitude, transformed him spiritually. What was it? God had wrestled with him. He had brought him low. He had brought him to a place of complete dependence on him to the point where Jacob cries out in chapter 32, I can't leave. I can't let you leave, Lord, without your blessing. He says, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. God sovereignly intervened in his life to prepare him for what lay ahead because the night was over and the day was dawning and there was Esau with 400 men on the horizon. Let's give attention to God's word as we read this chapter. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, Esau was coming in 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servants, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and seer. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he, Jacob, said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that we have your word in our language, that we can read it and understand it, even knowing that there are so many language groups around the world that still do not have your word in their language. We thank you also that we have the Holy Spirit who guides us into all truth, opens our eyes and ears and minds to understand, and so we ask that you would do that, Holy Spirit. We need your help. We need your help to understand. We also need your help, and we know that we can't do it without it, to live in obedience to your word. And so I ask that through our time together, Lord, that you would grow our love for you. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for this amazing story that we have before us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, if you would like to take notes, uh, we have three points is our heading this morning. Uh, In the first four verses, we're going to see a tearful reunion. And then verses 5 through 15, we're going to be allowed to listen in on an overdue conversation. And finally, we'll see that Jacob has a peaceful journey in verses 16 through 20. So in our first couple verses here, we see that Jacob looks and Esau is almost here. Remember again that the last thing that Jacob heard back in chapter 27 was that Esau had plans to kill him. And so what is the first thing on his mind? Well, our text tells us the first thing he does. It's his family. It's keeping them safe. And our text says that he divides up the children into the care of Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. And then he puts them in order with the two that he loved most, Rachel and Joseph, in the very back. And although Jacob is a changed man, he has been humbled. We know that he is far from perfect. And in the future, we know that he will show great partiality to Joseph. And perhaps we see just a hint of it here in this passage. But look at what Jacob does in verse 3. It says that he puts himself in front of his family. He's willing to take the full force of whatever Esau had decided to do. And so he's not taking the coward's way out. He desires to protect his family, perhaps hoping that Esau would show mercy. And there's a brief note of application here for us as husbands, that we are to be the protectors of our families. If the ship is going down, and you see all the men running past the women and children, pushing them to the side to get to the lifeboats, Doesn't that strike you as something that's particularly horrible and and cowardly? It should. From Genesis 2.15, when Adam is told to keep the garden, that word keep has the idea of care and protection, to Ephesians 5, when Paul tells the husband to love their wives as they love their own bodies. We see that God has called us to be loving providers and protectors. And Jacob does this here. And we also see a contrast here between how Jacob approaches Esau and how Esau approaches Jacob. Look at Jacob's posture as he approaches Esau. He's been transformed and humble. And it says that he's bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. Why seven times? Well, You know that seven is a picture, it's a symbol of perfection or of completion in God's word. And so the point is clear, that Jacob is completely submitting himself to Esau. And just put yourself there with Jacob for a moment. Imagine, his his face is in the dirt. He is most likely trembling. Perhaps he is weeping, expecting that at any moment, He's going to go meet his maker. And yet as he lies there, the sword doesn't come. He doesn't hear a command from Esau to attack. And perhaps maybe just daring to look up for a moment. What does he see? Well, verse 4 tells us he sees Esau running towards him. And perhaps that might have been a scary moment for him as well. But Esau is not running to him in anger. He's running to him in joy. And look how descriptive verse 4 is. It says that Esau runs to meet him. He embraces him. He falls on his neck and kisses him. And the moment is so emotional that they both weep together. And don't forget that these men are twins as well. Remember we know that that often twins share a special bond that other siblings don't have and that bond for years has been broken but now in this moment it is restored and the contrast is this remember i said look for a contrast the contrast is is that jacob approaches esau like a slave but esau approaches jacob like a what like a brother And all of this is an answer to the prayer that Jacob had in the last chapter, that God would deliver him from the hand of his brother. And so this is evidence of the work of God in both of these men. Matthew Henry, he says here, he says, God had the hearts of all men in his hands and he could turn them when and how he pleases by a secret, silent, but resistless power. He can of a sudden convert enemies into friends. And so he says, it is not in vain to trust in God and to call upon him in the day of trouble. Those that do often find the issue much better than they expected. And I'm sure you've seen that maybe in smaller ways in your own life. But how much this is true for Jacob, way better than he was anticipating. Well, now starting in verse 5 through verse 15, we're allowed to listen in on their first conversation in many years. And so the second point is here, an overdue, very overdue conversation. Well, verse five, uh, Esau sees all of Jacob's family and his first question is, who are they? Introduce me to your family. I want to meet my, not just sister, but sisters-in-law. I want to meet my nephews and nieces. And so one by one, Jacob introduces them to Esau. And you can see that uh, Rachel And Leah and the servants, they also come in humility toward Esau and bow to him. But I want you to notice Jacob's response to Esau's question. Uh, To whom does he give credit for his family? Well, it's the Lord. He says that these are the children whom God has graciously given your servant. And so Jacob here is affirming a truth that we see a couple times in the Bible, that God is the one who graciously allows us to have children. In Genesis 48, when Jacob meets Joseph's sons for the first time, we'll see this in a little while, Joseph introduces them in a similar way. He says, these are the sons that God has given me. In Psalm 127.3, we're told that children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward In Isaiah 8.18, Isaiah says that his children were given to him by the Lord. And we know that we are commanded by God to be fruitful and multiply. But we also know that everything we have, including or especially our children, that they're a gift from the Lord and we must be good stewards of these gifts. And speaking of this, uh, it's been on our hearts for a little while to have a parenting class a biblical parenting class for our new families, our young children. We have, we're so blessed to have so many young children, and some of the young children are slowly getting a little older. Uh, and so it may be that you could benefit from a parenting class. And so what I'm thinking, uh, and you can come talk to me about this if you think it would, it would work would be a good idea, but uh, of having a summer a parenting class in the evenings, Sunday evenings, uh, for about 11, 12 weeks or so, and meet it over in the kids' building uh, so the kids can come and, and play in there a little bit. But I think it may be a good time uh, in, for our church as we have so many young families. But let me know what you think about that later. Uh, in verse 8, Esau, he asks another question. He says, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Or another way you could say it is that why did you send me all these gifts? And we learned what they were last week. See in chapter two, the 32, the list of all the gifts that Jacob sent ahead to Esau. Look at verse 18 again with me in chapter 32. Jacob is talking to his servant, uh, and he says, Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are present, sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. Esau, Jacob's coming. He'll be here soon. 19, he likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Perhaps these presents will spare my life. So Esau already knew the answer to his question, because Jacob's servants had told him what was coming. And so I think it's more of a, re- a rhetorical question where Esau's saying, Jacob, why did you send me all of this? There's no need to do that. We're brothers. But Jacob continues to address Esau with respect and deference, and we see here in 32 that he refers to... Uh, to himself as a servant. And then in this chapter and in the previous chapter, he refers to Esau as his what? As his Lord. He says in verse eight, I did all of this to find favor in the sight of my Lord. And so do you see what's happening here, friends? This is pretty incredible. Back in chapter 25, when it was prophesied that the older would serve the younger. And in chapter 27, when Jacob had stolen Esau's birthright, and Isaac said, what? That Jacob would be lord over your brothers. And yet here, what has happened? Jacob has been so humbled, so convicted of his sin, that the roles have been reversed. Jacob calls Esau lord. One pastor said that this isn't a reversal of God's plan, but it is a reversal of Jacob's heart. It shows the transformation that has happened. That it's not all about him. He's been humbled. In James Montgomery Boyce, he said, uh, before Esau ever called Jacob his Lord, Jacob would first thus salute him. And before Esau ever bowed to Jacob, Jacob bowed low before Esau. truly, The path of sin is hard, and the pleasure of sin is never worth the price that must be paid for it. That's very true. Well, Esau is trying to turn down these gifts. In verse 9, he says, I have enough. I don't need it. You keep it for yourself. But in verses 10 and 11, Jacob politely insists. He's saying, no, 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 you don't understand. Seeing you today is like when I saw the face of God. And so he compares this meaning to what had happened the night before. And he's saying, Esau, your acceptance of me is comparable to how the Lord has graciously dealt with me. He has answered my prayer. Please, Esau, take these gifts. But look how he describes it again in verse 11. What does he say? Look at verse 11. He says, please accept my what? blessing. Whoa, wait a minute. Blessing? Do you see another reversal here again? But this is a reversal, not for Jacob, but for Esau. And this, again, goes back to chapter 27, when Jacob had stolen the blessing from Isaac that was rightfully due Esau. Now, Jacob, he's now desiring to be repentant. He's endeavoring to make things right by offering all of these gifts. Some of what Esau had originally lost. Now, of course, can Jacob undo the past? No, he can't, like all of us. We can't undo the past, we can't change it. No amount of livestock or money would undo what has been done. And in God's sovereign plan, the covenant blessing was still going to be on Jacob and his descendants? That's not going to change but there still can be forgiveness and reconciliation between these brothers. And it's similar for us. We can't reverse the wrong that we have done to someone. We can't change that. But we can come in humility and repentance and desire to make amends. And so Esau, he accepts the gifts only because Jacob keeps insisting. And it seems like that he was ready to reconcile with Jacob whether or not there were any gifts involved. But you'll notice that their respect and deference towards one another, one another continues in the next four verses. Look at verse 12 again. Esau said, "'Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you.' But Jacob said to him, "'My Lord knows that the children are frail "'and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. "'If they are driven hard for one day, "'all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servants, "'and I will lead on slowly.'" at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. And so here we see Esau offering to be a guide of sorts to help Jacob and his family on their journey. And he's inviting Jacob to come and stay with him in Seir. Uh, Jacob says that he will come and visit him, but it seems like he doesn't want to be a burden to Esau. And so in refusing Esau's offer, he shows special care for his own young children first and also for his young livestock. He knows that they don't have the ability, they don't have the strength to journey on as fast as normal. And there's a small application here for us as parents Uh, that we do not overwork or expect too much of our children. Uh, We can get sucked up into comparisons of other families. And although we may have our children's best interests in mind, we don't love them according to their strengths and weaknesses, but instead drive them too hard, putting our own interests ahead of theirs. And of course, we know we have the example of Jesus, our good shepherd. You know what he said? He says, All who come to me, come all to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will put you to work and drive the laziness out of you. No, he doesn't say that. He offers us rest and hope and grace and mercy. And Jacob says that they will travel slowly behind him. And Esau, again, it seems like he's wanting to help his brother. He offers to leave some of his people, some of his men behind to help. But again, Jacob shows humility and says, honestly, thank you, but I don't need it. How could Jacob refuse more help, more protection on his journey? Well, he clearly did have enough. But I think it also shows, again, what had happened during his encounter with the Lord that Jacob had a renewed trust in the Lord. He knows that the Lord has promised to be with him. Jacob is under the Lord's divine protection. And so it's at this point that Jacob and Esau part ways. And so we come to our last section where we see Jacob has a peaceful journey. Look at verse 16 again with me. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booze for his livestock. And then verse 18, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, and he camped there. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money, the piece of land on which he had pinched his tent. And then he Dedicated to the Lord, he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. So I have a map just to show you. I know it's some of it's hard to see, but it's sometimes good to get our bearings uh, exactly where these men were. And you can always look this up uh, yourself and look at more detail. But you see the the um, the solid red line is his journey at the first, and then the, the dotted red line is his journey back. And the details get a little fuzzy at this point, because Jacob says that he will visit Esau and Seir. But the text seems to imply uh, that he didn't end up going there, but he continued on. And so this would be in obedience to the Lord's command in chapter 31, where the Lord tells him to return to the land of your kindred. And these stops that he makes are temporary. First in Succoth, it seems like he just stays there to take care of his cattle for a little while. And then he goes on to Shechem. And then in chapter 35, we will see that he did, in fact, return to Bethel. That's that's one way to look at it, that he was obeying the command of the Lord. There's another possibility, and of course, we're not told this, but there is a possibility that Jacob was true to his word and did go down and visit Esau and Seir. But we're just not given those details. And some commentators believe that this was Jacob's polite way of not contradicting his brother when he says that he will go, but both of them knew that he wasn't actually going to go. Either way, what the Lord desired to tell us was this important story of his intervention in Jacob's life, which led to the reconciliation between him and Esau. And I titled this point, A Peaceful Journey, because of the word in verse 18 It says, and Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. And your Bibles may have a footnote that an alternate translation is that Jacob came peacefully to the city. And I think this tells us a bit about Jacob's demeanor and the end result of this whole ordeal. Because you know, his life up to this point has been filled with difficulties and dangers. He got stuck with Laban for about 20 years, where at one point Laban wanted to harm him to possibly kill him. And he gets away from there only to have what he thinks will be a violent encounter with his brother. And yet that wasn't the Lord's plan. The Lord was sovereign through it all. And now he finally has a moment of peace and safety. Now, none of us have encountered a situation like Jacob to that extent, But regardless, when we go through a dangerous or difficult moment, so when we come out on the other side, our hearts should be enlarged with thankfulness for the goodness of the Lord, for working each moment truly for our good and for his glory. And so what's Jacob's response? Well, You notice that he is in the promised land, and even though the Lord will promise to give him this land, the same promise that he gave to Isaac, the same promise that he gave to Abraham, the time to possess this land had not come. And so Jacob respectfully buys some land from the sons of Hamor. And the first thing he does is he builds an altar of worship to the Lord, and he calls it El Elohe Israel, which means, very simply, God, the God of Israel. And what he's doing is he's following the example of his father and his grandfather. They would dedicate their journeys and their dwelling places to the Lord. But there's also special significance to this place and in the name of the altar. Because God had renamed Jacob to what? Israel. That's right. We saw that in the last chapter. We'll see it expounded on in chapter 35. And so Jacob shows here his personal devotion to the Lord. He's saying, God is my God. But this is also the place, if you remember, where Abraham first built an altar to the Lord, way back in chapter 12, long ago. And Joshua 24 and Acts 7 tell us that this was also the site where Joseph and Joseph's brothers were eventually buried. Now, if you've read ahead or you know your book of Genesis, you'll know that Jacob's time in Shechem in chapter 34 goes horribly wrong. And some attribute the horrible nature of the next chapter to the fact that Jacob should have journeyed on to Bethel right away and not stayed in Shechem. But we will address that next week. But as we move towards closing today, I wanna end just in a time where we focus on this beautiful story of reconciliation and how that applies to us as Christ followers. And I first wanna ask you a question. You may have thought of this before, but why in the world did Esau want to reconcile with his brother? We have some insight into everything that was going on with Jacob, but why Esau? The last thing we heard was that he wanted to kill Jacob. And so what had happened between then and now, where now he desires to forgive and to reconcile? Well, we don't go outside of the bounds of Scripture, and so, very simply, we are not told. We're not told. The Lord gives us no insight into Esau's heart and mind. But you know what we can do? We can extract an overarching truth from this, that Esau reconciles with Jacob at great personal cost to himself at great personal cost. And this is true for any situation, with Jacob and Esau, but also with you and with me. There is pain in reconciliation. There is pain before peace. There is hurt before healing. And why is this? Well, think about it for a moment. In any situation where one person causes damage to another, physical, emotional, or whatever it may be, the cost of that damage must be borne by someone. The debt doesn't vanish into thin air. And you could illustrate it this way. This is a simple explanation, but about a year ago, our neighbor uh, was backing his truck into his backyard and he backed into our fence and he he burst through he damaged some of the panels of our fence and so he comes over and he apologizes and i forgive him of course this isn't a huge deal but my property has been damaged and so this isn't a situation where we call the insurance companies and so we basically have one of three options the first option is i say oh hey no big deal it's not that much damage. I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll replace the panels. I'll fix it. So I will bear all of the cost for this. The second option is that I say, well, neighbor, you know, you are the one that backed into my fence, so you should fix it. And so he has to bear the cost of it. Or we could come to a compromise for three and say, okay, we'll split the cost of the damage. Now, our neighbor's a good guy, and so he f- we have a great relationship with him, so he fixed our fence. But the point is, is that the fence wasn't going to magically fix itself. One of us needed to bear the consequences of the damage. And so, friends, you think about when someone has offended you in some way. We are called to forgive, aren't we? We are called to seek reconciliation. But that means that you have to bear the cost for the sin of someone else. And Christian forgiveness looks very different than what the world would say. With Christians, there should be no plan for revenge, for inflicting the same pain back on the person. There should be no room for cold shoulders, for neglect. That's the way of the world. But the way of the church is true forgiveness. The way of the church is reconciliation. But you know that often the hurt goes way deeper than the price of a damaged fence, doesn't it? People can hurt each other in ways that have lasting consequences. They can damage our reputations. They can slander us. They can maybe ruin our careers. Our marriages could be damaged. Relationships with other people. And you know, the greater the offense the greater the burden that you have to bear in order to move towards reconciliation. But true forgiveness means that you are refusing to give in for the desire for revenge. And that can be a hard thing to do sometimes, can it? We think, well, man, I will feel so much better if I can just get back at that person and make sure that they feel the same pain that I feel. But we know, if we're honest, that that kind of approach is only going to end in more misery, more pain, more suffering. And Esau, he was surely feeling all of this as he pronounced his death sentence on Jacob and then most likely planned how he was going to do it. In the end, though, he chose to forgive and to reconcile. And what was the result? The result was weeping and joy. For both of them. John Flavel, another great Puritan, he wrote, and I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but he said that Christian forgiveness is not holding on to, but freely passing by the injuries done to us in obedience to the command of God. The grace of God calms the tumultuous passions, corrects our sour spirits, and guides us to display the fruit of the Spirit. The sinful heart thinks that revenge is his glory, or you could say reward. There. But the gracious heart is content that forgiveness should be his glory. And so, brothers and sisters, why are we called to forgiveness and to seek reconciliation? Because that is exactly how God has dealt with us. Let's turn to Romans 5, and we're going to end here meditating on these words. Romans 5, let's be reminded of what the Lord has done. Romans 5, turn there with me to verse 6. We're gonna read verses 6 through 11. Paul says here in verse 6, he says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, you know these words well, that there was nothing good within us to explain why Jesus would die for us. We were weak. Other translations say helpless. There was nothing that we could do. And Paul is saying here, hey, it's very rare that someone would sacrifice his or her life for a good person. And even fewer would give their lives for a wicked person. But that is exactly what God did in sending his son for us. This is a selfless and undeserved love that is hard for us to imagine. In verses nine and 10, we see the assurance of our deliverance. And we see these words here, very important words, much more. And that tells us that what follows is even more amazing than what has been previously said. We've been justified by the blood of Christ. That's the initial part of our salvation. But because of that, we are, for sure, 100% saved from the wrath of God. We are are now identified with Christ. We are the children of God. We are no longer the children of wrath, as as Ephesians 2 describes, unbelievers. We're not children of wrath. We are children of God. Jesus took all of that wrath upon himself and bore the offense. So bringing this back around, friends, the cost for the forgiveness for our sins that Jesus took upon himself and he bore it, that cost is way beyond anything that we will ever bear in our lives. No offense in our relationships, no physical damage to our property, no pain that we have to bear to forgive someone will ever come minutely close to what Jesus bore for us on the cross. We have been reconciled to God through the death of his son. But you'll notice there's another much more here. He says, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And what is this? Well, this speaks to the security of our salvation. Paul is saying here, this is very important for you to understand. If God has the power to reconcile us in the first place, how much more does he have the power to keep us reconciled? If God saved us through the death of his son while we were his enemies, how much more is he able to keep us saved by the life of his son? That's what Paul is saying here. And I love how John MacArthur describes it. He says, if the dying Savior reconciled us to God, surely the living Savior can and will keep us reconciled. If sin was no barrier to the beginning of our redemption, how can it become a barrier to its completion? If sin in the greatest degree could not prevent our becoming reconciled, how can sin in lesser degree prevent our staying reconciled? If God's grace covers the sins, even of his enemies, how much more does it cover the sins of you and I as his children? Amen and amen. That is so true. And I hope that gives you encouragement and joy this morning because that's exactly what Paul wants us to do. In verse 11, our response is that these truths lead us to rejoice. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The true believer has joy knowing that his his or her sins are forgiven, that we are forever reconciled. And I think of the great song we sing here by Charles Wesley. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Let's just sing together these two stanzas oh for a thousand tongues to sing my great redeemer's praise the glories of my god and king the triumphs of his grace Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior come and leap, 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 lame for joy. Joy, brothers and sisters. And we want you to know this joy for the unbeliever here. We would encourage you to come in humility to the Lord, confessing your sins and trusting in the perfect work of Christ on the cross to save you, not your own works. They won't get you anywhere. And for the believer here, you know the joy of having your sins forgiven. And now, maybe you need to extend forgiveness to someone else. We are called to seek reconciliation with others because Christ has forgiven us so much. Remember, the cost that you must bear to have reconciliation with someone is nowhere near what Christ had to endure for us. Why would you withhold forgiveness from anyone? I know it's difficult and there's pain involved. We've seen that today but forgiving others will free you. It will give you a renewed joy for your salvation. It will be a healing balm to your soul. Well, friends, we've seen the end of Jacob and Esau's story. We still have a couple chapters left with Jacob, but then we'll be in Joseph for quite a while, Joseph's story. And we've seen what an encouraging story this is. But you know what, it points us to an even greater reconciliation between God and those he has chosen to redeem through the work of his son. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you so much. What a great salvation we have. And so we thank you for this reminder of this story from Jacob and Esau. And an encouragement it is to us to see Brothers that were at the point of murder and violence weep together with joy because of forgiveness and reconciliation. Lord, you call us, we know, to forgive others, to reconcile with others. So grow us in that, we pray. But even the more, even the more than that, grow us in our understanding of the gospel and how you, through the death of your son, have reconciled us, forgiven us, May we live in the freedom that that brings. May we live in the joy that that brings, giving glory to you alone. And we ask that you would allow us to share this good news, to share this joy with others around us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. King's Cross Church meets at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. at the campus on Lena Road. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, don't hesitate to email us at info at com. God bless.